Welcome to Close the Door and Come Here, a Game of Thrones and a Song of Ice and Fire podcast with heavy leanings towards our two favorite characters, Jamie and Brienne. There, there was a bear bear, all black and brown and covered in hair. I'm Guile, uh, Guile and Subterfuge on Tumblr, and joining me tonight, I have Chicky. Hey, I am Chicky, Chickren on Tumblr. Eon. Hi, this is Eon, and you can find me at Eon Blue Negative on Tumblr. YD. Hi, this is YD. You can find me at Yellow Delaney on Tumblr. And special guest, Aaron. Hello, this is Erin. You can find me at Brienne of Tarth at Tumblr. She is a very special guest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tonight... Tonight we're going to be discussing Game of Thrones Season 3, Episode 10, Pizza. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) Misa. And before we get started, we have a couple of trigger warnings for, um, I don't actually think there's rape, but you never can tell. So we've got rape, murder, um, Davos awesomeness, and double Australians. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, I agree with the trigger warning for double Australians, but why do we need a trigger warning for Davos awesomeness? Because some it's of us too much to handle. Too much? Yeah. yeah some of us might. Too hot? Hot damn? Hot yeah. damn. I don't want to be responsible for any kind of fainting. Oh, um, You know, I just want to warn the good folks out there. They've been good listeners to us. Very responsible um, so tonight, of you. Uh, yeah. You know, I really feel a responsibility to the fandom. <laughs> <laughs> Those laughs tell so much. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, so tonight's episode picks up right where the Red Wedding left off. Even the music is the same as we see Sexy Roost surveying the scene from the top of the twins as the Frey Bolton forces decimate the northern army beneath him. Sander grabs a Frey, a Frey flag, say that three times fast, to disguise <laughs> himself as he holds on to Arya and tries to make his way through the carnage. They had come across Frey soldiers chanting, the king of the north, and see them carrying Rob's body with Greywind's head mounted on the corpse. Sander turns Arya away as they make their escape. Oh, God. Of all the things they didn't need to include, (laughs) that fucking bit about Greywind's head being on Rob's body is something they did not need to include. I didn't need to see it. And of course, Arya had to open her eyes at that precise moment just to see it. Oh, God. So... Why did Sander shield Arya, do you think? I think, I mean, we we talked a little bit about this in previous podcasts, but I think that they do have this weird level of respect for each other and I do think he's coming to to care for her. And we see that sort of play out a bit later in in the next season where he's very adamant that uh, he's going to keep her under his wing, especially when he has that meeting with Brienne. So I think, yeah, I think he is sort of slowly coming to care about her in his own houndish way. Daddy Sandor. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, he told me his daddy Sandor. Mm. And I thought it was interesting that he, you know, he slowly seems to be getting over his fear of fire as well. You know, in the cave with against, in the cave against Beric and now again here, um, you know, getting Arya through all of that and, you know, with him and Stranger going through the fire. So, you know, he's kind of, Losing his fear, maybe. It's classic. It's, it's classic exposure therapy, little bit by little bit. Soon he'll be yeah. like dancing amongst the pyre. 
<laughs> or perhaps setting, you know, setting his brother on fire. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Just randomly happen. setting things on fire like Melisande. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, how come no one ever ships Hound Mel? Oh, that, oh, no. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's combustible. Mm, I don't know about that one. <laughs> that's maybe next, interesting pairing. Maybe next book. Um, maybe. We move on to Sansa and Tyrion. They're walking through the infamous King's Landing Gardens with Shay trailing behind. They start to bond over their shared status as disgraced daughter and demon monkey, respectively. Sansa talks about a prank Arya played on her, and it really shows how innocent she is. She can't even, she thinks shift is the bad word for poo. <laughs> wait, wait, um, what is it? What is it then? I, I don't know. I'm also it's very shit, innocent. It's shit, YD. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not shit. It wasn't that bad. You call yourself Australian. <laughs> Jesus. Australia. <laughs> I warned you guys, double Australians. This is what happens. Oh, sorry. Um, Pod interrupts them with news of a meeting of the small council. Tyrion walks into the small council room and Joff is like literally bouncing up and down with excitement to share the news of the Red Wedding. Um, my Probably my favorite moment of the scene is Pycelle does this awesome little bitch move by dropping the note from Walter <laughs> Frey just on the floor in front of Tyrion. <laughs> Oops! <laughs> Which was awesome. Um, Joffrey, you know, Tyrion reads the cryptic note and Joffrey tells him that Rob Stark is dead and he wants his head to serve Sansa at his wedding. Um, Varys and Cersei try to talk him out of it and Tyrion flat out tells him that no, Sansa is no longer his to torment. Joff defiantly tells him that everyone is his to torment. That's like, well, that's like, like the new Joffrey Baratheon house words. Everyone is really my to torment. And really, when you think about it, as far as meals at the Red Wedding go, Rob's head, probably an improvement. Just saying. Um, <laughs> Put pigeon pie. Too, far, too, too soon. Too far. Too far. Too soon. <laughs> Tywin, um, Tywin takes control of the situation and cuts Joff down. But Joffrey actually shows a little bit of backbone and fights back, telling Tywin that his father won the war and his crown while Tywin was hiding at Casterly Rock. Tywin is unamused by this and sends Joffrey to bed without his supper. Yeah, and with the Valium. Did anybody else notice that? Because um, Tywin's all like, oh, give him an essence of nightshade to help him sleep, which is basically the equivalent. And if he really bothers you, up the dosage. <laughs> oh, God. I, love, so- I love Jack Gleason's shit-eating grin when he first comes oh, into the room God. in this scene. It's, my- oh, it's amazing. So good. Um, I love that Tyrion's all, hey, killed a few puppies today, and Joffrey thinks, hmm, well, no, but that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Thanks for the inspiration, Uncle. Oh, God. Not the puppies. Oh, that first Tyrion and Sansa scene, though, it's Game of Thrones loves to do this where the audience knows that something terrible is about to happen or that something terrible has happened that someone on screen is about to find out. And yet they'll like give them this like happy, playful moment just as you know that like something awful is coming. So it's like you're watching Sansa have this banter with Tyrion and you see her like more comfortable than she's been in forever at King's Landing. You know, she gets a little bit this way with Marjorie, but. Oh, it's so awful to see her, like, you know, maybe having a moment to breathe and then, bam, she gets hit with, oh, your mom and your brother are dead. That is essentially, like, the whole summation of Sansa's arc, though, because that happens to her more than anyone, time and time again. It's like she finds out that she doesn't have to marry Joffrey and she's super excited and then all of a sudden, nah, you're not going home. In fact, we're going to marry you off to Tyrion instead. (laughs) Just kidding. Just over and over again. So the scene actually continues. Um, 
Pycelle, Cersei, and Varys all leave the room, but Tywin stops Tyrion from leaving. And they talk about, um, Tyrion tells him, you just sent the most powerful man in Westeros to bed without a supper. And Tywin remarks that if he thinks he's the most powerful man in Westeros, he's got another thing coming, basically. Clearly, they both know it's Tywin. They talk about the Red Wedding, and Tyrion knows Tywin was behind it. Tywin acknowledges this. Tyrion is really quite appalled, but Tywin asks... Why is it more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner? Tywin talks about his... Tywin talks about family. I'm sorry, did someone have wanted to jump in there? Um, uh, I can jump in. I guess my <laughs> question assisting. is... Oh, you go is ahead. Tywin right? Yeah, Tywin I wrote right? that in my notes as well. Like, uh, you go ahead, Erin. Oh, I was just going to say, it is an interesting thing to think about because... In a way, yeah, they were less casualties doing it through a wedding, but it's pretty damn cruel. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of morality, there are kind of two different ways you can look at it. And you're looking at, uh, well, is it better to kill less people but do it in a a more underhand or a less moral way? Or is it better to kill less people but do it in a... In a See, I, I yeah. mean, what, the way that I like to think about it is looking at it through Jamie's eyes because Jamie is one of those people who really believe in the fair fight um and it's to me it's sort of akin to saying well well it's a difference between stabbing your opponent in the heart or stabbing them in the back really I mean that's what that's what happened at the red wedding I feel like personally for me I don't know. I mean, is that is that what Tywin's even saying? Is he is that what he even thinks? Was that his motivation to save more lives, or was his motivation? Oh, I, to... I don't think it was his motivation and at that's all. What I'm but... saying it's to get shit done. Yeah, the way that he wants it to get done to achieve his aims. So I, I don't think Tywin can take any sort of moral high ground here. Well, I think it's a bigger question to me. It's a question of is it moral to apply rules to war or is war itself so immoral that by applying rules you make it somehow acceptable when it shouldn't be well i mean you know, I if think- war is war then everyone's fair game but if you pretend that there's rules then people feel safe and people are more likely to go to war well there are two things with that firstly most of the people in this in this particular society which is a sort of a faux fantasy medieval society don't sign up for war necessarily. Most of the people doing the fighting are the small folk and they are essentially called to war. They don't really get too much of a say in it. So whether or not there are rules or ostensible rules governing what happens in war doesn't really matter to them whether they feel safe or not because like it or not, they're off to fight even if they've never fought before. Right. You know, and I think that actually maybe goes against the point though, which is those aren't the people that would ever feel safe. The people that would feel safe are the Rob Starks. They are like the great Johns and the small John that would reasonably be ransomed and held hostage in a, in a battle. Um, they wouldn't expect to be killed on the, I mean, they might be killed in the battlefield, but they'd also expect that reasonably they could be ransomed back to their family. Whereas, you know, Joe Schmo, hot pie or whoever they're dead. And this kind of takes away that safety from them. And does that change the way that they act? And does that change their likelihood to go to war in the future if they're going to face some like pretty harsh shit along the way? Well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I know what point you're trying to make. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone feels particularly safe going to war. I think, at least in our society, there are rules that govern war, whether or not people adhere to them or not, <laughs> we don't know. But there are there are sort of guidelines in place generally. But yes, those guidelines do get broken and I think people know that and I think people are aware that when they go off to war, they could die. They could have some terrible shit happen to them. I don't think that anyone ever really feels safe going off to war. Uh, the most important thing I got from that is that uh, Hot Pie's real name is Joe Schmo. <laughs> I mean, we all kind of expect suspected that, right? So moving along from that philosophical House discussion, Schmo. sorry. <sighs> um, Taiwan talks about... Taiwan talks about family, and he claims that he's doing all of this for family. Um, he says, Roos is going to be named Warden of the North until Tyrion and Sansa's son comes of age. Tyrion scoffs at courting, San- at courting Sansa now, but Tywin insists that this isn't about what Tyrion wants, it's for family. And Tyrion thinks it's really easy for Tywin to say this because he's never done anything just for, just for family. But Tywin claims that the whole reason he let Tyrion live was for the sake of the family, because... He wanted to drown Tyrion, but he didn't because he's a Lannister, which I, what I got out of that scene is that the Lannisters are really fucked up. Um, I think he'd be right. Tyrion goes to tell Sansa what happened, but by her tear-stained face when she turns around, it's obvious that, she's already, that she already knows. And I think we're all thinking the same thing at this point. Poor Salsa. Oh, God. Poor Salsa. So the, the Tywin... Say... Oh, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. I was just going to say... You know, all this talk about Sansa's virginity, like Tyrion talking about wanting to protect it, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just such a shame to look back on because they tossed it all aside in season five, but that's, (laughs) yeah, that's just me. So true. Wait, what happened in season five? Oh, God. Nothing. That didn't happen. Yeah, I didn't didn't recall (laughs) season five. Sansa had a really good day. Oh, good. She sure did. Ice cream and puppies and stuff. Yeah. She really deserved it. Lemon cakes. Lemon cakes. All the lemon cakes she could eat. So from that happy scene, we move up north to Bran and the gang in the night fort. Um, they walk in and Hodor kind of does his favorite, my favorite Hodor of his, sorry, where he Hodors down the well. Um, and then, which I loved. You know, he does, Christian does not get enough credit for the variations of his Hodors, I think. I agree. Um, mm-hmm. Bran shares the story of the rat cook, which to this day, it kills me because I was sure that this was foreshadowing Wyman Manderley, but... Dude, me too! It's like, it was such a good setup for the Frey Pie. Where's my fucking pie show? Where is it? And you know what the worst thing about the pie was? I don't know if anyone, any of you paid attention to the description, but it actually sounded delicious. Onions, carrots, mushrooms, and bacon. Bacon, was I kind of wanted the recipe, right? I think, you know, the main thing that scene was probably doing was it was re-emphasizing the importance of guest right and the gods can't forgive breaking guest right. And then we segue directly into... Speaking of guest right, <laughs> we have another couple of people who are pretty delighted by the aftermath of the Red Wedding, and that's Walder and Roos. Um, Walder is just hardcore gloating. He is the lord of River Run, the Blackfish Escape, but basically he's completely unconcerned about it. Whereas Roos is a little bit more subdued. He kind of blames the victim and claims that if Rob had ever listened to him and had been less arrogant, maybe he wouldn't have done anything. Um, Walder actually, you know, howls. Oh! And <laughs> Roos is... 
you know, was beautiful. The young wolf, forever young, which always makes me think of that Rod Stewart song. Oh, it reminds <laughs> me of the Bob Dylan song. I wanna What's be the- forever young. <laughs> it's probably the same <laughs> song, but Bob Dylan wrote it. <laughs> Well, the Rod Stewart one was the one that had the commercial with all the baby um, safari animals. Yeah, I'm Australian. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know your commercials. (laughs) Um, Walter wants to know what really happened at Winterfell, and Roos reveals that Ramsay took care of the Ironborn and and captured Theon. This this scene scene really makes me excited to get Walter back, because... (laughs) You forget just how good David Bradley really can be at this just really despicable type villain. He's really, really good at it. I'm excited to oh, see what yeah, they're going to do with he, him. One great and he thing about mentions, him. Yeah, go ahead. Go. Go ahead. No, oh, I was going to say, he mentions that he needs a new wife, which is fun. Well, he does. Um, so what you think there's going to be like, Walder Frey is a new bachelor? Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, just piggybacking off what Chicky was saying about Walder, he really is the perfect kind of villain. And it's it's kind of rare to see in Game of Thrones um, to have someone who really is just an out-and-out villain with no redeeming features. I mean, they, they've tried to sort of whitewash so many of the characters who really should be more villains than anything, like Tywin, for example. So it is nice to just see someone who is just flat-and-flat evil, no question. It is. It's nice. And I like that they kind of went into the backstory of Walder and and the Tullys and everything. It was really great. I I really appreciated the scene, like, just from a a storytelling perspective. I mean, like, it was great in the moment, too. But it really, I felt, it kind of added to the richness of the world of Game of Thrones, in a way. Kind of gave some depth to some of this stuff. Yeah, and that is another thing that I think Game of Thrones struggles with a lot is p- providing enough of the backstory to actually make this, the current storylines cohesive and make sense to the viewer. Um, it's kind of a fine line, though, because sometimes I think they they have their moments where they introduce a bit too much of, ba- of the backstory, which I think is not particularly relevant to a scene. Um, then in other places, they just skip totally past it. And then I think viewers who haven't read the books can get a bit confused as to what's going on. Oh, I'm sure that they do. Yeah, oh, they must. Well, I, I know because I've got friends that haven't read the books and they do ask me occasionally for clarification on certain things. And mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've all had those questions. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah. over yeah. and over per episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. And I think something nice about the scene and actually even the one with Joffrey is, I mean, this might make me a bad person, but I kind of want my villains to enjoy their villainry. And Walder and Joffrey certainly have fun with it. They sure do. <laughs> they really do. We should get those two kids in a room together. Yes. Wouldn't that be just delightful? It really would. And, and I think there's someone else that could probably come into the room with them. Just saying. Um, <laughs> the next thing we have is Ramsay eating a big oh, sausage, nice. which, oh. to clarify, is not Theon's cock. Um, we just needed to point that out, just in case. He is having the best time in the scene. Um, He's just gross. He's talking about phantom limbs and <laughs> phantom cocks. And Theon just stares at him like he still can't believe this oh, is happening oh. to him. I um, couldn't help laughing at the beginning of this scene. I'm a monster. <laughs> I realize this. But Ewan Rayon is just so fucking amazing with his face. Like, he's just so good. I, I, I actually love watching him. And oh, I guess yeah. anything that takes the focus off Theon for a little bit is oh. good too. 
So my favorite thing right now was just that I was doing everything I could to avoid saying his name and trying to prompt someone else to say it. So thank you, Whitey. (laughs) (laughs) That worked out really well. Well played. Well played. Your your Welsh isn't so good, (laughs) Kyle. My my Welsh is lacking. Oh yeah, I this is a great door. scene. I mean, like, I laughed. How can you not laugh? It's funny. I mean, like, it's it's, it's actually yeah. It it was actually one of the funnier. Like, sometimes they try too hard for for jokes on Game of Thrones, and this was one of those where it was. I mean, it was definitely a a, a, a very in your face joke, but it was yeah, hilarious at the works. same time. It works. Though. I mean, the dick joke always works. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Pretty much. Um. You know, this scene kind of takes a turn for the disgusting when Theon begs Ramsay to kill him, but Ramsay isn't through having fun with him. He gets disturbingly close to Theon, and I kind of thought he was going to kiss him, which would have really been disgusting. Well, I mean, I don't think I'm the only one. (laughs) And he tells Theon he's just meat, and then he stinks, and then he's reek. And he demands that Theon accept his new name. Theon resists a couple of times, but Ramsay beats him until finally Theon succumbs. And we have Reek. Mm. But, I mean, I agree with you. I think that there are definite sexual undertones between the two of them. I mean, I, I don't think that they're going to become overt in any way. But, yeah, it's certainly there. Well, I've always, I mean, you know, we we know for sure there is sexual abuse, but I've always assumed that there was more sexual abuse before, you know, before what we see on, on paper. Mm. Yeah, I think there's definitely, an, a, 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 they're definitely intending to imply it. I mean, like, we've seen mm-hmm. it with Theon since the beginning of season three because of the the whole scene where he's being chased and he's almost raped um, by the, the other guys that, that ran, that were working for Ramsey. So, I mean, I think it's definitely been kind of an undertone in the whole season with Theon and like, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's not subtext. I mean, like it's there, we can all see it, <laughs> you know, so you can understand why people well, kind like of overtext. Yeah. yeah you well. can understand why people kind of, you know, extrapolate from that. I mean, like I definitely do not advocate shipping these two, but I guess I can in a weird way. Oh, I don't know. I think do. they could have like a beautiful, healthy relationship. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> why do you them and, talk? Them and 50 shades of gray. It's perfect. Oh, oh 50 shades of reek. Oh, reek. Oh, so no. our next. Oh, God. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no. I was just saying, like, Fifty Shades of Reek, and I was like, oh, no. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> there. Not miss. Not going. Um, we go back to the night fort, and Bran wakes up to some strange noises in the night. And it's Sam, Gilly, and the baby who are crawling through, I think, basically the well. Um, Bran tries to deny who they are, but Sam is no dummy, and he quickly deduces who this boy with the direwolf and a Hodor is. And a Hodor. <laughs> I love He's got his own Hodor. I love the way that Hodor just lights up with that big grin. It's like, oh, he's yeah. finally being recognized. Yeah. He's like, fuck yeah, I'm famous. <laughs> they know my name. They know me. <laughs> Um, Sam begs Bran and the gang to go to Castle Black with him, but Jojen and Bran tell him that Bran has to go beyond the wall. He needs to get north to defeat the White Walkers. Dun dun dun. <laughs> I really love Sam's face though. Whenever the Bran's like, "Hey, can you bring us north of the wall?" and you can see in Sam's face, he's like, "It just looks like he's like really he doesn't want to climb those stairs again." Never going back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he was you wheezing like a bellows trying to get oh, up those stairs. You know who Bran reminded me of in this scene? He kind of reminded me of Frodo in Lord of the Rings. I mean, I guess it didn't hurt that the guy he was talking to was called Sam, but... Honestly, Bran sounded so weary and resigned, you know, when he's saying, please, Sam, I have to do this, I have to. It gave me some real Frodo-esque vibes. And, I mean, when you think about it, the stories do share some similarities. I mean, they both have this special gift that's really a burden that they have to carry and they both have to go places they'd rather not be going to. And I guess they're both physically disabled or physically unable to go the distance in Frodo's case. Sorry, I'm such a nerd. (laughs) I could see it though. Thanks, Erin. So our next scene, we um, we had the Pike, which we haven't been to all season, and it's episode ten. It's a dick in a box. (laughs) Uh, Flayers Express has a package for Balon Greyjoy. It's demand for the Ironborn to leave the North, and as Whitey said, a dick in a box. Um, Balon is ready to abandon his child, but Asha is not. I'm sorry, I'm just going to call her Asha because that's her just name. Just do it. Just uh, do it. She, yeah, yeah, just do it. She's going to take her I'd fast like, ship, 50 best killers, including, and this is what kills me, she's going to take her 50 best killers and they cut to this like really super intriguing long-haired dude that's like super into Asha. Right. And who is he? He's not Carl the maid. <laughs> so who is he? Why have we never seen him again? What happened? This is supposed to be setting up Ashes as fucking boy. badass, but then nothing Dude, fucking happens. And then Dude, we never see him when again. When I fucking watched this scene the first time, I was seriously like pumping my fist in the air. I was like, clearly this is a deviation from the books, but I didn't even care. It was awesome. Asha was going to go rescue Theon. I mean, like, I was so into this. And then. Of course, we get to oh, season God. four and it was all let down. But this scene as yeah, it stands yeah. is pretty fucking awesome. So, Ian, did you say that you knew who the long haired dude is? No, I was just joking. I was saying it was Cheese Boy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he moved to Pike. He moved to Pike. He started lifting weights. He got tired yes. of the luxury of King's Landing, so he thought he'd better move to Pike. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but oh god, yeah, I, I agree. I thought this was an awesome scene, but the actual outcome of this scene in the next season—oh yeah, no, uh, total letdown. Yeah, Asher mm. running away from dogs. Oh god, um, yeah, it's it's sure, just. Um, I mean, but as it stood, it was like awesome. It's like I remember watching it, and I was like, oh man, they're clearly going way off book with this thing. But it was like you didn't even care. It just seemed so cool, <laughs> you know. Like, I no. feel like, and I think we'll make get to this a little bit later too. And even with the rat cook, I just feel like they clearly plotted out season three, and then they got more information between season three and season four, and there was a shift in things. Yeah, and I think like like several like half a dozen things got dropped basically totally. I and i think it's you know, one of the dangers of adapting it's one of the dangers of adapting i guess a, a, an unfinished work but um you yeah. know this this really suffers from a from a lack of follow-through that i think everyone would have been overjoyed to see it well sure it makes does. you wonder why why D didn't have that conversation with george right off the bat like once they knew they were going to get an order for season two, why didn't they have the conversation then of, okay, where's this going? We need to lay the tracks, right? You know, why did they wait yeah. until the, after they'd shot season three to really have that conversation? It's a really interesting or, question. Um, so, I mean, it could have, I mean, yeah, 
2011, so it would have been like 2012 and 2011 he finished dance. I mean, George might not have been prepared for that conversation, to be honest. He he should have been, though, by the time they were done, by the time they would have gotten their order for season two, I would think he would have been wrapping up dance and he should have. I mean, God, if he didn't know after 11 years of writing Feast and Dance exactly where the story was, was headed going into Wings, Dude, then he doesn't I can't know where even... where it's going, okay? <laughs> But, you know, it's, but, I mean, it's, even so, you could have done some, you know, they could have done something more with the Ashes scene they had, even if they had to cut it. Yes. It could have been more credible. Yes, so I completely agree. I think that is continuing in Game of Thrones, and that is they do very, very well when they have the source material and they know exactly where things are going. They adapt source material incredibly well as a general rule. But when they don't have the source material and they're inventing scenes, um, more often than not, I think they fall flat. Yeah, I agree. Well, and you know, I mean, to be fair, we we have no idea what's in wins exactly. And it could be that they they were concerned. And frankly, I understand why they may be concerned. And there may be reasons why they felt like they had to invent a few things. So I, I you know, I, I give them a little bit of slack there. But I think, you know, the biggest issue is what we're talking about right here, which is just that they they opened doors that they didn't really walk completely through. I mean, it's just like things like the blackfish disappears, you know, in, in episode nine. And it's like, we're finding Gendry. out we're gonna find about about him late late in season so yeah gendry the blackfish Did actually ever see gendry again yes yeah i do oh, okay we do but Aaron but does. but you know i mean like it, it's it may it, it really hurt the storytelling i mean like they were so strong through the end of, of season three it was really great watching this episode actually going you know they were really finishing pretty strong at this point um, and it is oh, yeah, too bad great, that they couldn't I mean, plow through from where finale. they intended to go, I guess, is the, is the way to put it. It almost makes me wonder, considering what we're finding out about season six, did they around this time decide we're going to shoot for seven seasons? Is that why they ended up doing a weird stretching thing with, with seasons four and five, do you think? Mm, I, Maybe. And now that they've know. let loose to go to eight. It's like the sort the material's breathing a bit again. Yeah, because I think like there's some serious pacing issues in season five. Yeah, um, which- season five was the worst to date in terms of story continuity, in terms of cohesiveness, in terms of uh, I guess. And was that written at a yeah? Was that written at like a point in time? That's yeah. I mean, I feel yeah. like it's it was written before. It was written at like a point in time before they actually really knew the ending, and now, now that I feel like they really do. Like, I mean, I hope they do because mm-hmm. I, I mean, mm-hmm. regardless, you you want them to have confidence in the story that they're telling, and whether you liked season five or hated season five, I don't think there was a confident hand leading you through that season. Mm, well, I guess yeah. we'll see uh, what the next and, season brings. Yeah. Okay. So anyway. Um, after that detour, we go back again to the night fort, and Sam explains the use of dragon glass and tells the gang that he used it to kill a White Walker. I always call them the gang because I sort of feel like they're <laughs> Scooby Doo for some reason in my in my head. I don't know why. Oh god! Um, he gives daggers and actually arrows to them, which I never really noticed before that he gives Mira um, dragon glass arrows. Mm. And there's been a lot of talk about the important, the potential importance in the future of um, archers. So we've got Mira and you know Theon certainly, um, among others. 
he gives Bran some real talk about what he's going to face, but Bran is really brave in the face of danger, and they set off beyond the wall, and there's this beautiful shot of Summer silhouetted against the opening mm. of the tunnel to end, kind oh, of yeah. um, end their place. And Yeah, it kind of like, lo- it actually looked to me at first like she was standing up against, like, well, in front of the moon. That's what it looks yeah. like. It yeah. was really gorgeous. Yeah, it was a beautiful, um, you know, there's a couple of beautiful shots actually coming up in this episode, and that was just a really, a really nice one. Um, so does the next Sam we go, still have to climb oh, those stairs again? No, does it's the meanest thing that they again? made him go down there. He's <laughs> going to have to so go mean. back. That's horrible. <laughs> oh, my God. Billy and the baby climb the stairs? <laughs> That's just Well, wrong. they probably stayed up. <laughs> because. <laughs> hey, steps are hard. Steps are hard. <laughs> Speaking of steps, uh, Davos goes downstairs. I'm assuming to visit Gendry. <laughs> you are nailing these segues, Kyle. These transitions, it's my you thing. You're nailing man. it. Um, he goes downstairs at Dragonstone to talk to Gendry. Gendry feels like an idiot for trusting Melisandre and you know her boobs. And he's super down on the highborn for treating the rest of them like disposable objects. Um, Davos reveals his own humble roots and the two bond over life and flea bottom. He talks about how he didn't want to be a lord, but he did it for his son, and now his son is dead. So basically, life sucks, and welcome to Game of Thrones. Mm. Mm. I love this scene. I mean, like, it's hard not to. This is one of those moments where you're like, okay, this is why Game of Thrones is great, because they can throw Gendry and Davos together, which is something you would never really imagine as a show watcher or as a book reader, and and they can just make it sing. Like, this was a really, really good scene. And I feel like it was like, it almost gave you a little bit of catharsis um, as, you, as you're like watching Davos throughout the season. It was kind of like oh, he finally gets to unload. It's like he lost his son and everything's awful and Stannis is being a dick and it's like he finally gets to, you know, kind of (laughs) release a little bit of his, you know, resentment and stuff. It was kind of great in that sense. But also these two just play really well off of one another. Liam Cunningham is so good with the younger cast members, you know, everyone from Shireen to Gendry to John um, Mm. this past season. He's just really has a nice rapport with the younger actors. He really does. Oh, it's yeah. it's a great scene, but Jesus, I wish someone would turn on a light because yeah, what actually happened? <laughs> it's different. It's so dark. Oh, one of I know, I know. It's like our comma splice memorial comment. Lighting sucked. Look, I know they're in a dungeon, but they couldn't have had like a nice skylight or <laughs> little window. I know. Well, a if we want light, torches. we get it. Christmas lights. Christmas lights. lights. Does does Relore have Christmas? Is there a Relorian Christmas? Absolutely. There's even a Santa Claus. Sweet. Does Santa Claus have great boobs? Um, absolutely absolutely great boobs, but like when that version of Santa Claus comes into your house, instead of leaving presents under the tree, they just set fire to the tree. Sets fire to to everything. (laughs) To everything. Everything. Oh, so you better not make the naughty list. Mary Rolormus. <laughs> Mary Rolormus. <laughs> <laughs> do a Futurama podcast all of a sudden. <laughs> Mary Xmas. <sighs> sorry, spoilers, guys. Spoilers. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. sorry. That's, that's, that's <laughs> so our next thing we see Shay and Varys um, walking outside the Red Keep in um, some gorgeous natural light. We can see everything, including their lovely fabrics. 
She <laughs> um, is super bitter, and Varys is all sympathy about it. It's kind of interesting because whereas um, Davos and Gendry just bonded over their lowborn roots in the prior scene, Varys tries to bond with Shay via their status as these non-Westerosi outsiders. He gives her a diamond necklace, tells her to leave, go to Pentos, buy a house, establish herself as a mysterious foreign beauty. Um, she's a complication for Tyrion. Shay refuses the necklace because she's an idiot, but um, what do you guys think? What is Varys' motivation here? Oh, Uncle Varys? <laughs> like, who knows? Who is this person? Playing, like, you know, how long of a game is he playing with Tyrion? Is he trying to isolate him? You know, I don't, I don't hate the scene, but I don't get what it was supposed to be about other than like Varys is nice and Shay is dumb. Like, you know, I, I think it. it's good in a way that they're trying to obscure Varys' motivations here in some ways because one of the minor quibbles I've had with Varys throughout the earlier seasons, and I'd say minor because I love new Varys, I love show Varys anyway, um, is that he's quite forthcoming with the, some of the things that he's thinking um, which is a little different to book Varys, who is more of an enigma. So I don't mind that I'm not entirely sure what Varys's plan is here. I mean, clearly he he's a big believer in Tyrion and Tyrion, ha- Tyrion having something to do with the outcome that Varys wants, whether that is to advise one of the Targaryens or a fake Targaryen or whatever. Um yeah, it's 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 really impossible to speculate, I think, beyond that. Um, but it's it's an interesting scene. Um, I liked it for the fact that it was a nice little reminder of one of what is really a, one of the perversive themes that runs through the books, which is about classism and treatment of the small folk, because that really is a big deal to the to the books. Um, it's just a little overt reminder, I guess, that a peasant or a servant might sleep with a lord, they might even climb their way up the ladder to become, say, a king's advisor, but that doesn't mean that they're equals. Um, and it's never going to mean that they're equals, and their current status could end with, you know, one wrong word or action. So I like that we had that little bit in there. So as well. here's my question for you, YD, though, is, um, you know, I think. We, we're inclined to sort of be on the side of, of those climbers and be on the side of the small folk with, you know, Varys and Shea and Davos and Gendry. How come we don't feel the same way about Littlefinger? <laughs> because he's a dick. Well, and Varys isn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> I well, didn't know that I would say that I was on the side of Varys in, in the books particularly. I... I find Varys to be a very shady, grey character. I'm not necessarily rooting for him. Yeah, yeah but he little, seems to have empathy, whereas Littlefinger doesn't so much. Yeah. And, Sorry, and what was, was that, Erin? Um, empathy, like Varys... Oh, you think he's got empathy. Yeah, whereas Littlefinger really doesn't. No, I agree with that. I do think that Varys shows some empathy. I think he... You know, he's, he's a big proponent, or so he says, of doing things for the greater good. But honestly, I think his idea of the greater good is what's great for Varys. Uh, Time will tell, I guess. (laughs) All right, we move on to Tyrion and Pod drinking, Um, but Pod can't keep up because Pod's just a boy. 
And he's an adorable lad. Um, Someone who can keep up, however, arrives and tells him to leave, which is Cersei. Pod gratefully runs away. Uh, Cersei has some some good words of wisdom here, which is an unhappy wife is a wine merchant's best friend. Um, She would know. (laughs) Also accurate. Um, Cersei maintains that there's no way she's going to marry Loras and that Tyrion should get Sansa pregnant because a child will make her happy. Uh, she goes in this long monologue about how Joff made her happy, and even the shit show that he is now doesn't erase her memories of what a good baby he was. Um, I don't know who this character that's talking to Tyrion is, but I would maintain that it's certainly not Cersei Lannister, because I don't think Carol. she would ever admit to anyone. Carol, Carol Lannister. Yeah, Carol Lannister maybe would <laughs> admit that Lannister. Joff was terrible, but Cersei absolutely wouldn't. Um you know, it's hard because I feel like the acting and the chemistry, everything in the scene is good, except for the words coming from her mouth. You know, I kind of like this scene, um, not just because I... Get out! (laughs) I've always wanted to say it! Yay! Welcome to the club. Um, It feels feels right that it was said to me too, Gail. (laughs) Look, obviously I, I always enjoy when Lena and Peter are on in a scene together because they're such close friends offset and it really does bleed into their interactions on the show. But I think that this scene actually gives us a nice little insight into Cersei's character. Um, she, When she's talking about uh, give Sansa a child, you know, it'll make her happy. Um, and then she talks about, Cersei talks about her own kids saying they're the reason I'm alive, which at first glance, you would think, oh, that's a really nice thing for a mother to say. You know, she really loves her kids. They're the ones keeping her alive. Um, but Cersei is such a complete narcissist. And if you listen to what else she's saying, you know, she's basically living through her children. She's she's that typical narcissistic parent who lives for their children's glory so that it reflects back on her. So she's essentially suggesting, oh, Get Sandra pregnant. Uh, give her a kid. Like it doesn't matter if the kid's introduced to an unhappy family. It doesn't really matter how the kid's treated. It's just Sansa will be happy because she has like a plaything. She has something to play with. Uh, so I liked that little bit. I think that's fairly true to Cersei's character. So like she and Sansa would be like competing dance moms. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch that show hardcore. <laughs> um. As for the Cersei, what does she say about Joffrey? Basically, that he was a, he was terrible. I think she refers to him as terrible. I can yeah. see how, yeah, Cersei probably wouldn't say that in front of Tyrion. Like that's not a. But I don't know. I mean, she does have these little moments in the books with Tyrion where she's quite forthcoming and quite honest. Not necessarily in terms of Joffrey, although I think in class she does have a conversation with Tyrion where they essentially discuss how Joffrey kind of sucks and how to fix it, though that's more in relation to his leadership skills and his personality, uh, though the two sort of go hand in hand. Um, so I don't think Cersei's uh, – she's not unwilling to admit Joffrey's failings to Tyrion in that respect. And she does let her guard down in front of Tyrion a few times. Uh, I do – seem to recall another instance in Clash where she cries in front of him and then she talks about how she should have been born a man so she wouldn't have to rely on any of them. Right. You know, that's a fairly mm. revealing thing. So maybe she wouldn't like necessarily say something specifically bad about Joffrey to Tyrion in that sense, but I feel like 
Cersei and Tyrion do have the kind of relationship where occasionally uh, they will let their guards down in front of each other and, and share some more revealing bits about themselves. Yeah, there was no some one's of that. Gonna... Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for someone to debate you. Why do you? Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think this particular scene is kind of out of character because, you know, Cersei's showing that she cares about Sansa. <laughs> Cersei doesn't care about Sansa. Yeah, but you, you are right that there are, she does have that relationship with Tyrion. Yeah. Yeah. There's also actually, there was another cool little moment that I'd forgotten about. Um, where Tyrion tells Cersei that Stannis and Renly are fighting each other and she's absolutely delighted with that and they start laughing together and then Cersei hugs Tyrion. <laughs> and that's the moment where Tyrion thinks, is this the Cersei that Jaime... Ah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's, that's right, yeah. That's a good scene. Anyway. Uh, just, just quickly about that scene, though. Like, Tyrion seems like a great drunk and I think we should invite him onto the podcast. Dude, I put it <laughs> Or, you know, the next best thing, we'll get Peter Dinklage really, really pissed and then invite him on. Oh, I feel like that would be really Peter, easy. <laughs> the invite is there. Peter, the invite is open. Yes. Anytime you want. Except it has to be, um, you know, our time. Anyway. <laughs> our time. You fit in with us. I ain't getting up early. I'll tell you that much. Oh. <laughs> not fair. Not no, well, fair. Not fair. I'm not getting up early. <laughs> Fuck you, Dinklage. <laughs> okay, if we ever do pitch this to Peter Dinklage, he cannot listen to episode, uh, whatever episode this is, 83, I believe. Peter, um, if you are listening to this, please send all hate mail to garlandsubterfuge.tumblr.com. <laughs> yep. She loves it. She t- it's the standard. She loves it. So we move along from Tyrion and Cersei over to our favorite pairing of Sander and Arya. And they come across some Frey soldiers who are recounting the details of the Red Wedding and basically mocking um, Catelyn and Rob as, as they're dying. Um, Arya approaches begging for food. She promises to pay, shows them her coin from Jack and Hagar. When the soldier bends down to pick up the coin, Arya attacks him. Sander joins in, and they quickly stab the men to death. Um, Arya's like freakishly dead-eyed after the oh, fact. Man. Sander tells her to warn him before she does something like this again. She, he turns around and she just recites Valor Margolis, and we hear like the Jack and Hagar music in the background. Yeah, wow, that's <laughs> chilling. Like the way Maisie plays this scene, it's funny. She her face is so blank um, when she's you know doing all the killing and. What not? But then at the end of it, when she bends down to pick up the coin, you can see that her hands are shaking a little bit. I thought it was some really beautifully subtle work I from her. That. Yeah, yeah. I love um, the scene. I think they did a good job of of kind of straddling the line of of you know this is a, a horrible thing that's happening to this little kid, and then also yeah. being. It's just so nice to see a, a Stark get a little bit of revenge. Right? Fucking phrase and their right. stupid hat. <laughs> and I love that the Hound is, and we were just talking about this, he's basically watching over her and he steps in and it's like they're their own little team, kind of like Jamie and Brienne, without the scorching sexual tension. <laughs> I hope. He even got some... The hound even got some barbecue at the end of that scene too, so it was pretty good. So everyone was happy. Yeah, well, good ones. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Oh what? my god, it's yes, yes. my fucking chicken. <laughs> I don't know why he was so hungry in that episode. Then he just ate anyway. 
Um, uh, I can usually eat after I've just eaten. I'm just saying. I know. I just wanted to try to be funny. Oh, <laughs> I ruined it. It didn't work. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we move on to another heartbreaking scene. Um, as Egret finds John as he's tending to his wounds, he tells her that he loves her, but that he doesn't have a choice. He has to go home. She's crying and she's completely heartbroken. She hits him with an arrow and then another and another as he desperately rides away. And, and we focus on her face as, as he's galloping away. And she's so hurt. And I just, you know, fuck you, Jon Snow. I'm so pissed at him. Oh, he loves God. her. She loves him. All I could hear in this, this scene was that baby come back song. Dude, I was just thinking that. <laughs> you know what's funny about this scene? I, I read back. I rewatched I rewatched this episode with my husband and um we were talking about the first time like when we watched this live he was so angry at John. I mean like angry angry. I mean like he's like yeah, I thought this was such a dick move and it's funny how they just didn't really I feel like they failed to convey how important the Night's Watch still was to John on the show. It's something you you have no question about in the books. Like you never really question that he's still loyal to the Night's Watch in the books. But on the show, I, I feel like they just, I don't know, I, I mean, it probably would have been tough for them to really make it clear. But other than him not wanting to kill the dude in the last episode, I feel like they kind of they kind of missed the boat with kind of showing you John's real motivation here. I don't know. Did, did anyone else yeah. who hadn't read yet feel that at the time? Or um, I, I think I, a little bit of that, but I also feel like the show has made a more determined effort to portray the wildlings as like individual human beings. So, and we see the story more from their viewpoint than we do in the books. And so it's easy to see their side of it. I think that was part of the issue. I think that um, they really did humanize the wildlings and we had spent so much time with them in the preceding months uh, that we had become very attached to them. Um, And I think, I I definitely agree with Chicky. I think that there, there were little moments peppered throughout John's arc with the wildlings where you would be reminded that he's not really one of them. He really still is a night's watchman. But I think that they could have incorporated a little bit more of that. I know without an internal monologue, it makes things a little bit more difficult, but I do, I feel like even with just a few little actions, a few little more actions, we could have. It can be a little more defiance or a little... A little mm. more defiance, maybe. I mean, we did get, as Tuki was saying, that one scene um, just prior to John and Negret's breakup where John, you know, was refusing to, to kill the old dude, which... But, yeah, was it enough? I don't know. I actually don't recall when I... Um, what I thought when I first saw this scene. I remember <laughs> being heartbroken, uh, but I don't remember... I don't remember sort of harboring any ill will towards John. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really sure. But I think they could have probably put in a little more just to indicate that John is, you know, really, a, he's really one of the brothers. And Night's Watch means an immense amount to him. Truly, he is Eddard Stark's son. He truly is. <laughs> I just want to say, I, I can safely say that I handle breakups a lot better than Egret does in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> you don't try to kill him. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't resorted yet. to that, so it's Not good. Yet. It's good. Biding her time. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, biding her time. <laughs> so we um, we move on to Sam. When there's a lot of Sam and Gilly actually in this episode, uh, as we went through it, 
and they're back at Castle Black, and Sam is confessing to Master Eamon, um, and you know, no, notice it tells him that he knows how this must look to him, and then he remembers that Eamon's blind. <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> you know, it's the cheap joke sometimes that work the best. Right. Um, Sam insists that he's broken no vows, and that baby Sam is not his son. Which t- I totally was getting Billy Jean the in my kid head is there. Not my son. Yeah, me too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> baby Sam is not her. No wait. Jilly Jilly Castor is not my lover. Oh, not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Give me two years. <laughs> two years and a fat pig mast. Yep. Um, Sam points out, and I kind of like this because it became a recurring theme, that his vows include guarding the realms of men, which include the wildlings. He tells Eamon about the White Walkers, and Eamon orders Sam to send out ravens to the to the realm because shit is going down. Yeah, um, I like the Sam and Gilly stuff. I don't necessarily think it was vital to the episode. I do think the episode ran long, and I think that it also had some issues with cohesiveness. So I wouldn't have minded if some of these were cut, but I thought it was a really sweet little scene. It's it's one of those scenes that they use, Game of Thrones tend to use effectively to kind of lighten um, the mood of an episode where there have been some particularly dark bits. Um, and also, yeah, it was a good little um, sort of segue into the following scene with Davos. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which I just, you know, everyone hold on to your panties because this is the scene. <laughs> and by everyone, I mean me, I guess. Um, <laughs> Davos is sorting through the mail and, you know, no, Stannis will not be going to the Florence name day party. <laughs> which is I love that. Going to some child's name day party. Just stand for the entirety of the party, grinding his teeth. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Shireen is helping him out, but tells him that her dragon books are more interesting. And I don't know about you guys, but all I can think about is too soon. Too soon. I can't see Shireen and and dragon books. No burning. Not going to happen. He reads the note from the Niggets watch. He's interrupted by bells ringing to celebrate Rob Stark's death. He heads into the Dragonstone conference room, I guess. Um, and Mel is like utterly delighted. She, Walder, and Joffrey should totally have hung out because they, all three of them had the same reaction. Um, just absolute delighted about Rob Stark's death. Davos argues against the use of magic to take the kingdom, but Stannis points out that Aegon Targaryen won the war with dragons, and that's magic. So take that, Davos. Point, Mr. Stannis. Stannis, I have to say, looks super hot in this scene, um, just as an aside. He always looks pretty hot to me. Um, They (laughs) talk about Gendry, and Davos argues against burning Gendry. Mel argues for it. And Stannis walks to the window and looks out to the sea. And it's just beautifully shot because we have Mel on one side and Davos on the other. And they're perfectly positioned as the devil and angel of his nature. Right. Although, did you (laughs) notice that their positions were swapped? Like, Mel was on the angel side and Davos was on the devil side. Is that that some sort of foreshadowing? Wait, what do you mean? What's the angel and devil side? (laughs) Well, the angel's meant to be on the left and the devil's meant to be on the right. Really? Well, that's, that's, my experience. that's my experience when I look in the mirror and my little angel and devil pop up. <laughs> I mean, I genuinely didn't know that there was like a side they should be on. There are rules, Guile. There are rules. Oh, I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, and then we get to like literally one of my favorite moments in the entire book show everything, which is Stannis asks, 
What is the life of one bastard boy against a king a kingdom? Everything Davos says. I <laughs> And then we all sob. I Look, mean, like, like we said a couple of episodes ago, if you don't love Davos, just get the fuck out right now. Yep. Yep. Um, I, 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 the only thing is, I kind of wish she had focused on Davos in that moment because it is a yeah. Davos moment. It's such a Davos moment, and we're really just looking at Stannis's face. Anyway, that was yeah. my one little quibble. But God, yeah, I fucking love that line. Um, I have another Stan- problem with the scene. Mel- Melisandre again is burning everything except for like proper firewood or coal. She's got like these little carved figurines. Someone has worked on those for hours, handcrafting them. Oh man! And she's just tossing them in the fire. And then she's like, let's set Gendry on fire as well. Come on. What else have we got to add? Yeah. People have been working on him for... Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Stannis Dumbledore's that the boy must die. Um, Davos disagrees and heads to the dungeon where he jailbreaks Gendry and sets him off in a boat. And then we have Gendry still rowing. <laughs> Alas, still rowing Gendry we knew him well and then never saw him again. Yeah, he really had a bad mustache at this point, so I almost didn't miss him. <laughs> so maybe he's off to like one of Littlefinger's brothels to be a pimp? Is that what you're saying? Maybe. You know, that would have been interesting instead of Olivar if we would have gotten like pimp Gendry. <laughs> Gendry. <laughs> I just love that, you know, Gendry's never been in a boat. He doesn't know how to swim. And Davos still thinks that's the better option to escape Melisandre. Well, I mean, he's, he's probably going to die like, you know, 10 feet in. Well, it's still, he's got a better shot of it, um, I think. I know. He'll be back. Don't worry. Shucks. He, he'll be back. He might be half dead. Do you guys, so, I mean, do you guys think that we're ever going to get Gendry back? Oh, and, yeah. And how and where? Who Season the hell six. knows? He's coming back. I have no doubt he's back. Six, but why and where? No idea. I mean, I don't but know. Yeah, we'll have, say, I, I wanted to say something then, but I probably shouldn't. No, say, should. it, say it, say it, say it. Just, just wait for when Maisie Williams turns eighteen to film. Then suddenly Gendry's going to reappear. Yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm really sorry. Is she seventeen right now, or is she? She might be eighteen. She's isn't eighteen. She? I think she's eighteen. So yeah, he should be Next back season. season. Mm-hmm. I w- I could. I have to say, I could real person ship them if she was a little bit older. He was a little bit younger. Whereas Erin's like, so long as she's 18, it's fair game. No, 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 that's HBO <laughs> and D&D. Like, like they did with So Paternal, like just waiting, waiting, waiting. Yes, yeah. it's birthday, let's go. Mm. <laughs> Little countdown clock. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, we move on to an unconscious John who's dumped off of his horse at the gates to Castle Black. And I felt like this was a really Wizard of Oz moment that he wakes up to the sight of Pip and Sam kind of hovering <laughs> Above him, except and I was thinking, oh, if another, only this was just a dream. But it's, not. it's just another Frodo thing. I mean, come on, yeah. Pip, Sam, Frodo's returned to the Shire. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I I do notice in my notes I wrote a concerned pup and Sam or pup him pup pup. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like this scene was really awkward. Did this scene seem yeah. awkward to anyone else? It was kind of weird to me. It was awkward in the sense that what Guile said, it reminded me of The Wizard of Oz. It really did. Well, and I think, too, it's like, I think we're like, oh, yeah, Pip exists. Okay, good. But I do think that given season four and what was going to happen, if they're going to kind of try to reestablish some of the main the main people from the Night's Watch, which we're going to spend a lot of time with in season four, you know, 
bring in Gren and Ed, too. Oh, Gren and Ed, why? Mm. I know, you know I Too love soon. you, Gren. Too soon, baby. Um, so we're on to the third from the last scene of this incredibly long episode, I have to say. And it's our it's our guys. It's Jamie and Brienne. They're coming in the gates to King Land to King's Landing. Jamie's trying to strut back into town, but he gets immediately put in his place by some lowly little merchant. And then Kyburn is hilariously gawking like tourists at like the tall buildings around him. <laughs> but then Brienne is walking in like she motherfucking owns the place, <laughs> which is awesome. She's doing a little turn on the catwalk. She is doing her turn Swag. on the catwalk big time. Mm-hmm. Um, she gives Jamie this shy smile, and he looks back at her and kind of hurries away into the Red Keep. And we see Cersei looking at some shell. I don't know what the fuck she's doing. I sort of thought she was bringing her childhood at the rock. And we hear I the thought she was, like, players. pretending to be Wolverine, the way she's holding that shell. <laughs> Sorry. I like that better. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie. Bloody shell scene. Oh, my God. It's Carol again. Oh, it's right. Carol all over. Oh, dude, Carol. it's so Carol perfect. with her shell. It's so Just perfect that Erin is on this episode because she made one of the best homages to this scene that exists in the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To Seashell Cersei. Because <laughs> it was just so cheesy. All it needed was the Celine Dion music and the oh, cheesy yeah. effect. Like, so I, I did it. You yeah, know. We might need to link to that, actually, when we post the Tumblr. Oh, okay. Post. <laughs> I like some of the little touches, like Jamie's standing there and the Kingslayer's anthem is playing um, as he finds her. And he mutters her name and she looks at him. And I think they both actually, you know, I, I criticize Lena quite a bit, but her acting here is, I mean, I quite like what she does here where she has the relief of seeing him. Then she can't believe that it's him. And then she kind of notices what he is now. And he gives her this look that I think he's almost shame- ashamed. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. can't bear for her to see yeah. him like this. Um, what did you guys think about the scene? I think it's a pointless scene. I think it's a pointless fucking scene that led to sept rape. So no, not here for this. <laughs> oh yeah. God. I actually hate, I hate both these scenes. I hate the Jamie Brienne scene before this, and I hate the Jamie Cersei scene after well, this. I think they're both question. We have an, a non-question that came in um, specifically about the Jamie and Brienne scene that I I kind of have always wondered this too. And it's, I want to ask if you can please talk in the podcast about that little scene with Jamie and Brienne. I'm probably stupid, but I never understood why Brienne smiled at him. And he looked so, I don't know, angry, disgusted, annoyed. Mm. I don't know. Can you please discuss this? And uh. I guess I, I, I agree. Like, I don't know how to translate his face. It was mm. almost like she wanted to maintain She's smiling at him in a way to like maintain this bond that they have, and he's rejecting it. I, okay, I don't know. My, look, my take on this scene is different. My take is that Jamie gets back to King's Landing where he was a big damn hero, um, or at least <laughs> at home. People treated him like a lord or as the lord commander. Oh, hang on. He wasn't even – oh, no, he was lord commander at that stage. Basically, he is treated in, in high esteem. And he gets back, he's lost his hand, he's lost everything and people are treating him like a peasant because that's what he looks like. So I think Brienne understands that, she smiles at him, I think it's sort of some compassion in there. I think Jamie might see pity in there um, and I think that he's ashamed and I think that's the look we see because 
Jamie doesn't like showing vulnerability. You probably noticed he tends to use sarcasm and humour as a defence mechanism to stop people from getting too close, to stop them seeing how he really feels. So I think despite the fact that Brienne has seen him at his absolute lowest, really, um, Jamie's still Jamie and he has this really fucking big wall around him. So I don't think he would appreciate being pitied or even maybe compassion in that moment. Okay, that's I, I don't think that's, that's it's exactly how I feel. I don't think it's shame. I don't think what 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 Nikolai is trying to show there is, is shame so much, or you know, like or or that he doesn't like the pity that he's getting from Brienne. I mean, definitely, that's what Gwen is trying to convey. I think it's you know, like you know, number one, the scene is supposed to show the bond that they have had, but it's also clearly supposed to show that the bond isn't going to continue. Now that they're back in King's Landing. And to me, I just see him looking at her and he's like, oh, shit, what am I going to do with this mess? You know, just like, basically, that's my take on the look on his face where he's like, oh, fuck, how am I going to deal with this now that I'm back in reality? You know, um, yeah. definitely, definitely, I think that um, it's interesting what D&D's take on Jamie's book arc was they really kind of honed in on this idea of, of a class warfare element to it that I never really picked up from the books. I think you know Jamie's Jamie's change of action, the way that that, that he changes how he deals with the world, um, definitely exists in the books. But I think it's more inspired by a lot of internal stuff than it is you know necessarily by him being humbled per se. I don't think it's a humbling that you see. I think it's just a better understanding of the world. Um, so yeah, I, I think that they just threw that in for kicks because they were enjoying doing the same thing with Locke throughout the season. Um, but the the look between Jamie and Brienne, the look that Jamie gives Brienne drives me bonkers. I think it's just where he's like, fuck, what am I going to do with this woman now? And I hate it. I hate everything about yeah, it. Yeah, I, don't, I honestly don't I, say that at all. I honestly don't. Sorry, Eon, what were you going to think we're. I think I think we should really focus on the looks between the two women, though. I mean, we shouldn't focus on Jamie here. We should look at Brienne's, you know, face towards Jamie when they walk in, and then also whenever he walks in to see Cersei, her face. I think that's the comparison you really need to focus on. Well, I mean, there are, yeah, obviously there are always those differences between Brienne and Cersei and as we come to know or as we know as book readers, um, Brienne is sort of like a, a counterbalance to Cersei who really only wants Jamie to be that perfect reflection of herself. So as soon as she sees him come back and he's no longer whole and he no longer looks like her, she immediately starts to to disregard him. Whereas, yes, with Brienne, um, she's got that look of compassion, got that look of pity. She understands Jamie. She she's seen him for who he really is, and she she wants to be around him. She likes who he is, who he really is. Yeah. Anyone else have a take? No, my take's identical to YD's, to be honest. It's wow. Exactly, it's exactly how I see the scene. Australia, I mean, it was interesting because I, I never, you know, I kind of agree with, a, a, I kind of agree with everyone, which is such a lame thing to say, but I never really knew how to interpret those looks. And I, I think like everyone's given, you know, given a really good, a really good idea of what it could mean. 
Look, basically um, what it means is they're going to bang in season six. <laughs> oh, for the love of God, please. Please. Um, please, Jesus. George, please. <laughs> George, please. It's been 84 years. George, please, we're writing fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we come down to the end of the season here with just a couple more scenes. Stannis confronts Davos about releasing Gendry. And Davis and Mel are pissed. Wait, Davis and Mel are pissed? Stannis and Mel are pissed. Sorry. I'm sure, I'm sure Davis is pissed, too. He's Everyone's pissed on pissed. the inside. Everybody's drunk. Yeah. Everyone's oh, yeah. drunk. Everyone's sorry. Everyone on podcast is drunk. <laughs> uh, Davis is doomed the kingdom. Doomed, I tell you. Um, <laughs> I feel like doomed needs to be said in all caps. Um Stannis sentences Davos to death, but Davos tells him that he's going to need him. He's going to need, he gives Stannis the note from the Night's Watch. Mel throws it in the fire and then like instantly changes her tune. Like, oh, all the shit we've been doing doesn't matter. Yeah, Real war up so north. I love that she's all, this war of five kings means nothing. And Stannis is like, oh, cool. Glad I didn't senselessly murder Gendry then. <laughs> or like all of my men at the Blackwater, et cetera. Oh, like, lived good lives. Oh. Um, she tells him that Stannis' destiny lies in the north, and Stannis laughs and tells Davos that he's been just been drafted into Ruller's army with that. Um, Stannis that. is, like, such a dick in this scene, to be honest. Pretty much like a dick whole season. But I will say that the lighting in this scene oh, is incredible. <laughs> the sun setting behind Stannis and the fire in front of him and then the torches behind Davos. Yeah, it that- is fucking gorgeous. I'm not usually one to like, you know, rave about the lighting or rant about it either, but it, it was actually something that I noticed with the sunlight flowing through the window. It really was absolutely beautiful. So anyone else want to talk about how hot Stannis was? <laughs> I'm always happy to talk about how hot Stannis is. He is hot there. All I wanted was a little validation, so thank you, ladies. You got it, well, he has got a lot of layers on, and there are a lot of fires in the room. So, yeah, temperature-wise, it probably was. A <laughs> 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 toasty. Toasty. Too soon. Yes. Too soon. Oh, oh gosh. So, you guys, we get to Young Kai, finally. And oh, yeah, Danny and Posse are quite artfully staged. Um, her boys in the front, girls in the back waiting for the slaves of Young Kai to accept either their conquering or liberating, either or. Uh, Missende gives this little speech, telling the people they owe their freedom to Danny, but Danny stops her. That's wrong. She can't give them their freedom. They have to take it. Uh, everyone kind of stands around as they fill up the square, and then they start calling out Misa, Misa. Missende tells her they're saying mother, which pretty much breaks Danny. She moves into the crowd and accepts their adoration and crowd surfs above them. Oh, God. As the music crescendos and ends season three on this triumphant note. um, And I will say, raise your hand. Uh, I'm sorry, question mark what? Question mark, triumphant note, triumphant note, question mark. Well, the thing is, is that the music is actually really beautiful. I love the music. And that's all I loved about this. It's thing. downright well, Danny, religious, Danny's that music. Is nice. Yeah, she's, yeah, really, she's really white. Nice she's outfit. white. Yeah. Jesus. She's oh, white. God. Jesus. Yeah. This is. I mean, I guess so I, I hold on to, like, the book scene, which I love because it flashes back to, you know, she remembers what she saw in the House of Undying, where she's riding her silver through the crowd. 
I would much rather her ride her silver through the crowd than ride yeah. the slaves. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. Oh, you know, it's funny. It's funny. Oh, go ahead, Chicky. I mentioned I rewatched this with, with my husband, who is very much a person of color, a person of many, many colors. And <laughs> it's funny. The first time that we watched this, okay, I was really bothered. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, look at the light, white lady has come to, to save everyone, you know. And, and he's like... Oh, oh, you know, that's just TV. Welcome to television. You know, <laughs> he really blew me off. So as we're rewatching it, <laughs> I was like, do you still like the scene? He's like, no, he's like, I didn't like it. Then he's like, I just really loved Danny at the time. So <laughs> I couldn't say so anything about off Danny. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> God. Now he's not such a Danny fan. He's like, this is atrocious. And I was like, I know so, this is one of the most tone deaf things I've ever seen Hollywood do in the last like 20 years. I mean, this is so bad. It, it was, yeah. and it, it wasn't just, you know, white sa- savior saves, you know, black slaves. It's also um, so cheesy. Well, oh crowd, oh. they have to do the crowd surfing. I yeah. mean, what was that? Um, but and, you know what? Racial issues aside, I I also had an issue with the scene generally. Is that in that I feel like it was written as a hugely climactic, epic moment that would have the show's audience kind of stand up and, and cheer. But for me, it was another of the show's unearned emotional beats, not least because it felt like a repeat of Danny Freeing the Unsullied, and I feel like that was done to much greater effect. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just not a lot of forward momentum in this episode at all, like which is okay in a sense for a season final, but it really did fall flat in a few places for me. Yeah, I- I think, you know, having painstakingly gone through the episode and rewatched every fucking scene, I, if I were to pick which scene I would have ended the season with, I think I would have picked um, Bran and that shot of Summer silhouetted against the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. as maybe what I would have ended the season on yeah. if I if I wanted to end it on something um you know, not, like, horrible, basically. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, like, if I had to guess, I feel like what they thought is that they were hitting an upbeat moment with this scene. They're like, oh, we've really hammered people with the Red Wedding, so we want to give them something really upbeat and something they can cheer about. Yeah, I agree. That's what they were going for. But what they didn't understand, they really missed the boat a couple places. Number one, they shot the thing in North Africa where they didn't have... Good racial balance and turn this well, thing into a they, racial like, nightmare. Half the extras were like leaving and stuff too. Like it was super hot, so they were losing all of their extras throughout the scene. I remember hearing oh, that right. story too. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, like it, it was a really huge misstep there that they should have recognized and just stopped. They should have just completely scrapped the scene when they realized what it looked like. I mean, I don't understand how someone in the 21st century could look at this shot and not go, "Guys, we've got a problem here." But number it's two. Total. Just a little. You know, everything thing, everything but, she just said could have been applied to the rape scene as well. Yeah, that applies to. But the other thing is, the thing they don't seem to understand is, it needed to be a stark. It needed to be a stark, triumphant moment in order to have any catharsis for the audience after the red wedding. You know, Danny. You know, as much as as the show audience seems to love her, she's she's not going to make up for you killing Catelyn and Rob the week before. It's not going to give people hope going into the next season. 
And it just was one of those really big misreads of, of what the audience needed at a given time that this was, I think, one of their first huge missteps that way. And it's something we'll kind of continue to see them, you know, repeat this misstep <laughs> throughout the next couple of seasons. So, they just kind of miss the tone so that they needed. I have an embarrassing question for you guys. So how many of you watched through the credits thinking that maybe you'd see Lady Stoneheart? <laughs> well, they titled uh, the fuck- fucking episode. This I is the other the thing. Yeah. <laughs> they titled yeah, the episode Misa. And so everyone at the time thought, oh, we're yeah. going to see Catelyn coming yeah, out of the river right. at Dude, the minimum. What you realize what trolls they are? 310 oh, is 410 is the children. And 510 was Mother's Mercy. <laughs> What's frustrating? What's frustrating is there are actually numerous places they could have introduced Stoneheart, like since season three, that would have been perfect for a Stoneheart reveal. And I feel like we've skipped all of those now. And now that we know, spoiler alert, that Jamie's going to be in the Riverlands next season and Brienne's going to be in the Riverlands next season. Uh, what do you, I mean, <laughs> there could be a moment where there could be a Stoneheart reveal, but I feel like it's too late. I mean, it the is, Red Wedding yeah. happens, what, it's going to be three years. It well, just feels like it's it's going to be too late. It'll be it's three a, years and Gilly's baby still won't have aged. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Exactly. It's the same thing as like with the Blackfish and stuff. It's like if you had just checked in or kept the storyline going, it would be different. Right. But they did Even just a mention of him, like we didn't even yeah. have to see him necessarily. It's yeah. not difficult. Or just have seen like maybe the silhouette of his curls like in all seriousness, uh, like when Brienne and Pod are at Hot Pie's Inn, if we could have just seen like someone that like the audience or the knowledgeable audience could have thought was maybe the blackfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I this could is totally see that happening. This is another, if I have a, if I have an issue with the adaptation, it's this, it's that they have the foreknowledge to put this stuff in early to kind of build you to it better than they ever do. You know, they knew enough that they could have been dropping a lot of things from the very first episode that they chose not to do. And I've never understood why, since they knew the entire story, they didn't do some of the things that they could have been and or could have done. And this is another one of those. It's like, if you're going to bring the Blackfish back, um, which clearly they intended to do in season three, maybe they were rethinking in season four, but they must have decided this around season five. Why not drop a hint? Why not give us a little something so that we can expect, you know what I mean? It's it's just a weird thing that they don't do. This and just not really understanding what the audience needs at a given moment are kind of the biggest weaknesses that they have as storytellers. I mean, I kind of feel like we're not going to have Stoneheart. And personally, I'm not overly upset about it because I do think that she was a mistake on George's part. And if she doesn't play a big role, then I... I'm fine with her not being in the show. In fact, I'm happy with her not being in the, in the show, but um, yeah, I mean, I think like reminding people, the blackfish exists and he's out there reminding people that Gendry is out there, reminding people that the brotherhood are out there, um, you know, would go along, would go a long way towards that continuity from season to season. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. can tell you for a fact that the unsullied that I watch with if the blackfish is to reappear, they will have absolutely no fucking idea who the blackfish is. <laughs> um, so I just feel like season, it makes me even more angry at what they did in season five because there were so many story threads that they could have pushed back into the forefront just a little bit to set up for the return of some of these people and to set up for what is 
hopefully going to be happening in season six. But instead, season five was just a really disjointed, um, incoherent mess. They really made some really big, big errors. Um, I know we, we talk about this ad nauseum. I'm sorry, but season five was a real disappointment for me. And I just, I do worry that they're not actually going to be able to make It'll be a interesting because it feels like, you know, from the spoilers that we're getting that they're pivoting back to some of the in Westeros, um, published material, whereas, you know, some of the weakest parts of the published material they handled fairly deftly in season five and Esso. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, the story, the Esso storyline in season five, I enjoyed, frankly, more than the book version of it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's because I cut so, way down. Well, right. But I mean, you know, it, it was a better, you know, frankly, it was a better interpretation of it. So, um, you know, I think Danny's I mean, entire know, storyline they've done a better alive. job with. They've done a better job with all of Danny Overall, yes. to me I and agree, also with the SO stuff. You know what? Even in you know, even as I rewatched season two, even season two wasn't as bad mm-hmm. as I thought it was at the time. Um, you know, they they have they have made some really good adaptational choices. What's weird is in season five, they made the same mistake that George made with Feast and Dance, mm-hmm. which is spreading the world too far. Like <laughs> the Doran thing was yeah. a huge mistake. You should just shouldn't have done it. Um, and they just didn't issues. seem to realize that. I know we're getting totally off track, but there are still issues with the adaptation of Danny's storyline, particularly in season five, where I really got the sense that they didn't know where Danny was going, so neither did the audience, because it was really difficult to actually dis- discern um, what Danny's motivation was for doing some of the things she was mm. doing. And she was very, very wishy washy. She kind of vacillated between well, saying was, one had, thing and doing another. Yeah. She had to vacillate until episode nine when she could Drogon out of there. <laughs> Drogon out of there. And so, and you know, the. Obviously, we all have many things that we would wish the producers would do. But I mean, one thing, and it's going to be, it's going to sound a little bit ironic, but in some ways, I, I think they have to have a little bit more confidence and um, trust in their audience so that if, you know, if Danny has four episodes worth of story in season five, Danny should be in four episodes. Um, if Tyrion has three episodes of stories, he should be in three episodes. Like, trust the audience to be okay with that yeah They'll like if, if main characters are we don't yeah. need to check in with right. every like, major say, character in every sansa, episode if, like, if sansa shouldn't be in a season she just shouldn't be in the season don't invent yeah. right. a storyline you know with <laughs> right and they've done it with bran and i i think you yeah. know they've done it with bran they've done it with you know some other characters and i think that's fine i think you know trust and like trust in the largeness of your story yeah. to, to be able to do that and bringing that back now to the current episode that is partially what my issue with this episode was and that is the episode just had too many scenes it didn't have a particularly unifying theme it felt less like a cohesive piece of storytelling and more like we were just moving from one isolated character to the next so and I feel like this is really a continuing issue with the season finals in Game of Thrones they have so many characters to check in with and they feel like they have to provide each one with some closure for the current season and then kind of set them up for the next one but although to be fair I mean it was a pretty for me anyway it was a pretty entertaining episode to watch like I enjoyed a great number of of the scenes Um, I enjoyed several of the scenes too but I do feel that it was lagging a little bit in some of them and I felt like some scenes were completely superfluous to the actual storyline 
but I'm not saying it's, yeah. it's a bad episode. I don't think it was a no, terrible no, episode. No, no, I think it's, you know, I think it, to me, I think it's probably other than um, the first season, I think it's probably the best season finale that they've had. So uh, we finished uh, episode three. Uh, sorry. So we finished season three today of Game <laughs> yeah. of Thrones. And we finished I just wanted all to say, the seasons. Yeah, that, that's oh, it. Yeah. That's the end of Game of Thrones. There's uh, no more seasons after that. So good work, team. Well done. <laughs> right. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> we made it. We made it. <laughs> Looks like we made it. <laughs> Left each other all the way. How come I always sing on the podcast? I don't know. It just um, YD, do we have any? I am quite emotional. Um, this was exhaust. You guys, this is exhausting. Uh, Davos. Um, you know, I'm I'm always gonna think about Davos and and everything. Kyle, uh, what is what is one boy's life or one bastard boy's life against a kingdom? Everything. That depends how hot is <laughs> a boy. Everything. Yeah, it depends how hot he is. I guess doesn't even matter. Arms of ugly, ugly, old, young, hot. Davos will not matter. Davos is Davos is down for him. Um, YD, do you have any thank you? Do. Anything you want to say? Yes. Any <laughs> last words? Well, you know, it's been a pretty good day, I guess. I mean, I got up and I... <laughs> okay, so the first thank you we have uh, is from Tumblr. And it was actually the <laughs> the anonymous who sent the question in about the Jamie and Brienne scene in this episode. But they also said, um, hey, guys, love your podcast. So I thought I should just give them a little shout out thank you for saying that and for sending in that question which led to a quite a lively debate uh our second tumblr message was from our lovely moderator lady of tarth heart and posts on tumblr she says love ladies i especially enjoyed the duncan egg talk wouldn't it be cool to read and discuss those stories in the future <laughs> now, Lot said that because we may be discussing the Duncan Egg books uh, sometime in the future. So stay tuned. Um, uh, I don't know whether I should read Lot's next message, Kyle. I feel like you have to. <laughs> I feel like I have yeah, to. you should. Okay. So uh, I should probably preface it by saying that uh, when, Gal sent, uh, when Lot sent in that message, Gal was like, oh, when did we talk about Duncan Egg? And... Lot then sent in another message to add on what I just sent in for episode season three at nine. I think it was around the 37 minute mark. In fact, she's got 37 minute, 18 second mark. Seagull, I wasn't high. Uh, so Lot actually went back and listened to the episode just to dis- uh, discern where the actual timestamp was for that discussion. Um, <laughs> Look, I understand. I understand. Uh, anyway, she says, I just love the idea of Walder Frey getting a spanking by Dunk. Although I don't condone that. Children should never be hit, yada, yada. Good stuff, y'all. And Daphne was a lovely guest. <laughs> and that she was. Daphne she was a yep. guest. Uh, so our next uh, thank you came in via email from Stephen. Now, he sent us in two really good questions, which we will definitely address in the coming weeks. He also said that he is still enjoying the podcast and to keep up the good work. So thank you, Stephen. Oh, and I should say that, Stephen, we haven't forgotten about that Brienne question you sent in a while back. We are working on that, so stay tuned. And we received one more email from the lovely Lady Blade War Angel. Uh, This was in relation to the last episode, although I think she sent in emails for 
the previous few episodes as well. So thank you so much for those. Uh, this current one says, hi, ladies. Oh, my God, I finally all caught up. I'm so happy. I was one of those evil people who filmed the reaction of my cousin. <laughs> this is the Red Wedding episode. After the episode, she actually demanded that the video never be seen online. There was lots of crying over Greywind. But when I asked her about her feelings about Rob's death, that dark-haired one at the wall, don't we all? Except lots. Mm. And I was like, damn, you love the emo. Oh, the bread and salt is mentioned in the books as part of the guests, right? Also, the reason Walder picked Rosalind is because she's prettier than all the others. He does this because he wanted Edmure to be distracted by betting her, because his family were murdering the Starks in the Great Hall, and also because he wants Rosalind to conceive an heir. Once Rosalind gives birth to a Tully, Walder can kill Edmure and keep a claim on Riveron. Ah, the Red Wedding. It's just so sad, but I was kind of expecting it, to be honest. There was no way that Rob was going to be able to make another deal with the phrase after he broke his word the first time around. Oh my God, my face has gone red. Oh my God, you guys mentioning me is so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for making this amazing podcast. I'll be waiting for the next episode so I can listen uh, into all the crazy. There are some crazy theories out there. I've heard some amazing theories, although Preston Jacobs and his videos make me die laughing, mainly because they're just really odd. <laughs> Anytime you want me to guest, I'm totally available now that I've finally caught up. All my best wishes, Lady Blade War Angel. So, I know she's so lovely. Thank you so much for sending all those messages in. And we are really glad that you are enjoying the podcast so much. Yes. And that is all for thank yous, Gail. So if you um, would like to leave us a review with iTunes, um, we would love that. It's been a while since we've got an iTunes review. I'm not calling out any particular countries, um, America, Canada, UK, Australia, but, you know, I'm just saying any of you could do it. <laughs> uh, send us a message via Twitter to Door Podcast on Tumblr at Close the Door and Come Here or Gmail, Close the Door at gmail.com i believe um our next episode thank you our next episode is actually going to be our third season six update episode um as of today which i believe is october 19th 2015 the greatest day in the history of the universe um we have some (laughs) why is that big we have some big filming spoilers So I'm hoping that everyone is going to be down to talk about those um, next week. And we'd love to get your questions and your speculation about what you think is happening. You guys do not Um, want to miss that episode. Trust me. Yeah. Because we're going to be really drunk. If the tents are flapping, don't bother rapping. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's inspirational. Well done. So thank you guys. Thanks, Aaron. Um, this wasn't as scary as I thought with double Australian, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> Damn it, we failed, Aaron. I know you really. We gotta, really like trained ourselves. It was hard. Yeah. <laughs> Drop a koala on me or something. That comes later. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everyone. Backyard. <laughs> thank you, Kyle. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Good night. Moderating. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. 